It's an American institution, March Madness, and not just on the basketball court either. Democratic Party legislators continue to fight for the right to castrate and sterilize young kids, and they're calling us the butchers. In Vermont, authorities say a Christian school can no longer compete in statewide sports competitions unless they drop their opposition to boys playing in girls' leagues. And the city by the bay could soon be the city eager to pay. Reparations, that is. Could San Francisco be giving millions of dollars to each black resident? We have the very latest on this proposal. You're not going to want to miss this latest edition of the Midnight Ride podcast. Let's go. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023, and you're listening to your home for misinformation and disinformation, also known as The Truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Special thank you to all our Midnight Ride listeners for spreading the word about our podcast. Keep sharing us in your conservative circles on social media and even with your crazy leftist aunt. We have converted people in the past, and if you haven't already, You can give us a five-star rating on our sponsor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening. Thank you very much. I am Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Well, it's spring break, so he is off this week. And as you might have guessed, he's off sunbathing somewhere. Actually, it's the big island of Hawaii this time. So as we continue our morning or afternoon commute, we can all just continue to live vicariously through the Runyon family and we will get the report from Paul when he gets back on which resort he visited this time and and some of the fun activities. But I hope you did have a great St. Patrick's Day weekend. I certainly did. But odds are that your bracket is pretty much destroyed. Wow. The NCAA tournament, the men's side this year, has been particularly crazy and chaotic. We had a number one seed go down. Purdue got taken out by Farley Dickinson. And big names like Arizona, Duke, and Kansas are already out. Hundreds of thousands of people have already ripped up their brackets in disgust. That's why they call it March Madness, folks. And speaking of March Madness, that's not just confined to the basketball court. The pageantry and the pressure-packed tournament action We've had some March madness, or we can call it March insanity, in our nation and and around the world here in 2023, which has been a real doozy. We started off March, what we talked about last week, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which then spread to Signature Bank, and that set off alarm bells in the banking system in the United States and Europe. And during our show last week, when we talked about this, we played you our tweet of the week. And it was a question that presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had about Silicon Valley Bank, which was, did the bank make decisions based upon ESG principles or woke politics? That's what Vivek wanted to know. And we don't have the full answer to that question yet, but we did learn a few things since our past show. We learned that For example, California Governor Gavin Newsom had some of his money in that bank. And we also learned from the California-based Claremont Institute 
that Silicon Valley Bank, and this, this could be a partial answer to that question from Ramaswamy, donated more than, well, they took more than $70 million of depositors' money and gifted it to race-based discriminatory hiring practices, race-based subprime lending, and partisan voter drives, among other things. So, you know, some news outlets actually said that they cut a check to BLM. That's not exactly accurate, but essentially it's the same thing. They donated money that their depositors put in the bank to discriminatory agendas. And if that's something that people who deposited their money into that bank knew about, they might have thought twice about keeping their money in there. Now, despite Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's assurances, people on both sides of the Atlantic appear to be worried about our banks, and a global recession could be on the way. The last thing I'm going to say on this topic is that was just an update for last week's show, is that given that Silicon Valley Bank went woke and then went broke, and Signature Bank as well, we might all do well to maybe do a little bit of homework on the places where we're putting our retirement nest egg or our kids' college fund. You know, it might do us good to ask a few questions like, what are you doing with our money? I mean, if they're out there like Silicon Valley Bank was bragging about their ESG agenda or their DEI efforts, maybe that's a sign that you should consider taking your money out of those banks. Enough about that topic. Just wanted to update you on on that $70 million that does partially answer Ramaswamy's question. But this week, with Paul gone, I thought I'd take the opportunity to go on a Coughlin rant about the hill that I will die on. This is a topic that I'm very passionate about, and it's the cancer that has spread across our nation and inundated our youth, fueled by TikTok. Of course, I'm talking about the transgender craze that is chewing up our nation's youth and spitting them out. This cancer has spread to all 50 states, but starting last year and really picking up some steam with some of the state legislatures this this spring or this winter and now spring, conservatives have started to make progress. They took the gloves off and we're starting to see state governments pass laws which make performing gender mutilation surgeries of minors illegal, giving them puberty-blocking drugs and other chemicals, making that illegal. This is a very positive sign. Many states with Republican-led legislatures have already passed or are currently debating bills that would punish some of these doctors and maybe even parents who either sign off on or perform permanent life-altering surgeries on children. I mean. It's the law, right? A kid 18 years of age or under the age of 18 cannot legally give consent under our laws, right? And you cannot really call this medicine. The left calls it health care. They call it gender-affirming care. That's the euphemism they use. But what is it that we're really talking about here? I'm sure you're following this issue, but if you aren't, gender dysphoria, which has existed for centuries, if not millennia, and was treated through other means, usually counseling or or some other sort of psychological therapy, is now treated with hormone therapy, puberty blockers. 
These are drugs that are actually used to chemically castrate sex offenders. And then to go a step further, in many hospitals and clinics around the country, they actually perform double mastectomies on teenage girls. They take out the uterus of some of these girls. Uh, They perform all sorts of surgeries that not only sterilize these people permanently, but also leave them unable to have any sexual function at all in adulthood. So if you're going to die on a hill, folks, this is it. And this is something that seems very much like common sense, right? I mean, what some of these Republican legislatures are saying is, look, what we're talking about is protecting minors. In Oklahoma, they actually did try to pass a law that, and, and may have passed a law, I'll have to check, for limiting it to people 26 or above. So anybody 25 or below could not have these surgeries. Why did they choose that that age? Well, that threshold is because all of the data and research that we have shows that you cannot make decisions really until you're 25 because up until that point, the brain is still forming. You do not have a fully functional brain or a fully formed brain until you're 25. And that is why in these very common sense legislation, you know, laws that and bills they proposed limit it to adults only. We don't let children get tattoos. We don't let them purchase tobacco or alcohol or rent cars or engage in many other activities while they are unwilling to, unable to give consent as a minor and while they are, you know, not possessing a fully formed brain. So this is very common sense stuff, which is why it's sweeping through a lot of these legislatures. But Democrats are fighting these bills anyway, and the corporate-owned media is doing everything it can to bolster their narrative. So an update on some of these bills, I believe Arkansas may have been the first state to pass legislation banning these procedures. And in the last couple months, we've seen a lot of states follow suit. We saw Tennessee, Mississippi. Last week, Florida became the eighth state to enact legislation that would protect children. There's a bill in debate in Kentucky that seems destined to land on Governor Andy Bashir's desk. He says he's going to veto it, but the Republicans have the votes to override it, and that's probably going to happen in Kentucky. In all of these states where Republicans have passed these laws or seem like they're about to, the Democrats have parroted the same talking points, and they have fought very passionately to continue to, to allow clinics and doctors to perform these procedures on children. Their argument is not only incoherent, it's unconscionable. And I'm going to get into that in a second. And where we're going to go to talk about this is actually a place we don't talk about very much on the midnight ride. We're usually talking about New York, California, Florida, Texas, the state of Nebraska, a place where you'd think, yeah, this this kind of stuff won't fly very well. It's a red state. I mean, besides, there, there's two major cities in Nebraska, if you didn't know, if you've never flown over the state. Omaha, the home of Warren Buffett, and Lincoln, the capital. Those are little blue enclaves, but the rest of the state is overwhelmingly Republican. And this state places a strong value on farming, family values, and individual liberties. Their governor, who's been in office a couple months now, is a guy by the name of Jim Pillen, a cowboy boot-wearing rancher a la Yellowstone's John Dutton. And the legislature in 
Nebraska is not like a lot of these other states. They're unicameral. They have a Senate only, no no House or no Assembly. 49 members who work part-time for just $12,000 a year. That sounds like a pretty good system. They get term limited out at two terms. So a small government and it's overwhelmingly Republican. So you would think that this sort of bill, a bill to protect children from these life-altering surgeries would go through. And a bill was introduced at the beginning of the session this year called LB 574, also known as the Let Them Grow Act. This would ban all of these treatments, surgeries and hormone and, and drug treatments to people under the age of 19. And for the last three weeks, the legislature in the state of Nebraska had pretty much ground to a halt because one state senator from Omaha, Nebraska, named Michaela Kavanaugh has been filibustering in protest of the Let Them Grow Act. Now, she finally got tired of standing up there and, and talking ad nauseum and has decided to allow the bill to go forward for further debate. The reason she's doing that, she claims, is that she is tired. And who wouldn't be if after filibustering for three weeks? But these are the lengths that the Democrats will go to try to stop a bill like this. Hold up state business all of the bills on farming, taxes, all of the other agenda that the, the people of Nebraska want done have been held up for the last three weeks by one woman who wants to allow gender mutilation surgeries to continue in the state. There are 49 legislators in that body. And unless you have 33 votes, you cannot stop the filibuster. It's very similar to the U.S. Senate where you need 60 votes in Nebraska, you need 33 of the 49, and there are 32 Republicans. So even if all the Republicans said, we want this bill to go forward, they would still need a Democrat to sign on or else that Ms. Kavanaugh can, can filibuster it again once she catches her breath, which she says she is going to do. Now, will a Democrat pass something like this in Nebraska? Maybe if they want a second term, right? Because the people of Nebraska, absolutely, you would think, would want to have something like this. But again, this woman believes that it is her duty to stand up there and stop all state business until it, teenagers are free to have their breasts and penises lopped off surgically, have their uteruses removed, have skin grafted off their arms into fake genitalia, or to have puberty blockers given to them, which, by the way, these things can cause osteoporosis in a very young person. And a lot of this stuff hasn't been done. There's no empirical evidence to show the long-term effects of this because this phenomenon is, is pretty recent and they have permanent effects on these kids. So not only does this legislature, Kavanaugh, do this for the last three weeks, but she goes as far as to say that people like us or people like myself who are opposed to this have blood on their hands, or she said bloody hands. Yes, this is the moral argument that these folks are trying to make. And we've seen it in Kentucky, Minnesota, California, and other states, pretty much all of these states, the Democrats, Florida, the Democrats that have opposed this are saying that if adults do not go along with the wishes of the children and give in to have these permanent treatments done, 
there's going to be a wave of suicides and that the Republicans who are proposing these bills are just bigots who hate LGBTQ youth. Well, the second argument isn't even worth talking about, but let's look first at this claim about suicide, which is number one, a lie, but it is particularly evil because what you're doing is you're telling parents who don't really have a lot of data on this phenomena of gender dysphoria. They love their children so much and they just want them to be happy. And here comes a doctor or a therapist or a legislator or a media personality that says, hey, a transgender son is better than a dead daughter. And then they point to some cherry-picked, manipulated study which says that suicidality among teens experiencing gender dysphoria is reduced or eliminated by these procedures. And that's a bunch of crap. As I said earlier, gender dysphoria, even though we're seeing a mass explosion in the last five years or so, is not a recent phenomenon. I mean, it's not like COVID-19, which has only been around a few years. It's been around a long, long time. And where were all the suicides for all of those decades and centuries for boys and girls who were not able to get this, quote, gender-affirming care? Because it didn't exist. So you had all these children, and it wasn't a, a super high number like it is now, but they were saying that they felt like they were a boy or a girl, and maybe they could wear the clothes, maybe they could pretend, but they couldn't legally do some of these things that, that we've seen recently in the United States, have these surgeries and puberty blockers and things like that. Was there a wave of suicide among these youth? There's no evidence of that. So this is a particularly dishonest and disingenuous fake argument, but it will scare parents and it could scare some legislators off and we cannot let it. This is an absolutely evil argument. And it's one the left has been using for some time on countless parents and young people, especially teenage girls, to devastating effects. I want to introduce you now to Luca Hain. Luca is a 21-year-old woman. She transitioned at the age of 16 to be a man, okay? But she, she has now detransitioned. This is something the left will not talk to you about a lot, the detransitioner movement. But the bottom line is this. At the end of the tunnel, when you get to the other side, the grass isn't always greener. And there are many, many young people whose lives were ruined that are starting to come out and talk. And Luca Hain has a message for all of you who are hearing about these bills in the state legislatures. So let's listen to her story now. I spiraled into a hatred of myself and my body and was told that it was just because I was a boy born in the wrong body and that this would fix me. I was affirmed down a path where I wasn't given any other choice as to what would help me. The very first medical intervention I ever had was a double mastectomy at 16. And then a few months later, I was put on testosterone. I'm now 21 and I will live with the impacts of that so-called care for the rest of my life. 
in the past four or five months, I have watched as my body has fallen apart in front of me, my joints constantly hurting, my vocal cords aching, watching as parts of me atrophy away before my very eyes. And yet at 16, they looked me in the eyes and they told me this was care. They told me it would save me. Despite the fact I was never suicidal, my parents were baited with the idea of, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? Bullied into going along with it. Their biggest crime being trusting those who they thought took an oath to do no harm. It's not about hate detransitioning. It never has been. It's about keeping kids whole. I've I've worked with children. I've seen them explore the world. And I've seen that magic that they have. And doing something like transitioning them takes that away. How can you look me in the eyes and tell me that a child can consent to being changed to an experimental medical industry before they are even old enough to drive or understand the impacts of what that means in the first place? Kids deserve to be kids. They deserve to get to explore the world as a safe and loving place. Wow, that was so powerful. And it really, if you see the video and you see Luca telling her story, it makes you want to cry. Uh, if you want to see the video on Instagram, you can visit battlecry underscore US. Battlecry is an organization set up by three mothers in San Diego, one of whom is actually former Miss California, 2009, I believe. You might remember Carrie Prejean Bowler, who was, I think, stripped of her title because she stood up for traditional marriage back in 2009, something that probably wasn't too popular in California back then. But but Miss Prejean, still a very strong woman of faith, is banded together with a couple folks. And Battle Cry is an organization that fights for the protection of children. If you go to this video, and special thanks to Battle Cry for, for sharing that with us, you hear from Luca, the detransitioner, and she says, I was mentally ill. Me and my parents were essentially told that these procedures were the only thing that could save me. And you heard there about the same verbiage, the suicide lie a son or a dead daughter. And so now she is furious. She is now out telling her story to as many people as she can. And detransitioners like Luca are now suing hospitals and doctors. And that's another thing state legislatures need to look at for people who were coerced or taken advantage of as minors. Because, you know, as Luca points out, this is pretty much experimental medicine. And it is costly. It's a big profit maker for hospitals and clinics. Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire uncovered some videos last year. And these videos of the Vanderbilt Health Clinic, they were posting them on their own website saying, hey, these things are very good for us financially. Because if you have, for example, a phallioplasty surgery where you take the skin from a young lady's arm graft it off and, and make it a fake penis out of it. Apologies if you have children listening. These types of surgeries involving gender mutilation often require multiple cleanup surgeries after the fact. So they're 
a constant moneymaker for, for hospitals who could just collect and collect and collect off of people's insurance. And that doesn't that kind of seem at odds with the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm? Luca also points out that she was groomed into this, okay? Now, I know the left is triggered by the word groomer, which means we should use it at every possibility to describe people who are trying to push children into this transgender life. You can be a tomboy. You can be a boy who likes to wear pink or even dresses or play with dolls. That doesn't mean you are a girl. You are not. If you have certain chromosomes, if you have certain body parts, there's no getting around the fact that you are a boy or a girl. And this term groomer, the left is triggered so much by it that they work to censor it and punish people for using that word. But the fact is that kids are having things put in their head. They are being groomed. And as a somewhat related aside, quick aside, over the weekend, I did watch the new Chris Rock live comedy special on Netflix. It's called Selective Outrage. I recommend it. I thought it was pretty good. But in the special, there's one segment in there that where he talks about what he calls our number one addiction as an American society. And it's not a drug. It's not fentanyl. It's actually attention. We're all addicted to attention, Chris Rock says. And he details a few hilarious and not so hilarious lengths that we go to get attention. But one of those ways, he says there's four ways. The fourth way, I don't want to give up his, his whole special, but he does say that, and this is very true and probably the most effective way to get attention is to become a victim. Young people today want to be victims. They want to be seen as being victims. And anyone who's ever been on TikTok can see this. And the way that the algorithm works, I mean, if you're, if you go to a few of these videos, you're going to see nothing but nonstop people, 12 hours a day of transgender, pansexual, paleosexual, non-binary, furries, people who identify as cats or inanimate objects, anything they can do to get the likes, to get attention. And look, I mean, if you would have to be living under a rock not to see some of these people, these young people, because I think now about a quarter of all young people are identifying as something other than their sex whether that's non-binary or, or something else. But you can see them walking down the street, green hair, pink hair, blue hair, purple hair. Many of them are morbidly obese. Apologies to anybody who I'm describing that is not identifying as anything other than their assigned sex. But this is, this is pretty common. Piercings in their septum, on, on their cheeks or their eyes, their face, weird makeup, etc., Burly guys wearing dresses, girls trying desperately to look like guys. And you see this if you spend any time at shopping malls, supermarkets, many restaurants. Where am I going with this? I know I've probably offended many of you, but I know you've seen them. And here's the thing. And I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of these young troubled youth. And I know you have too. And I'd say 99.9% .9 of them were Caucasian. Did you ever notice that? I know I have. Now, and I spend a lot of time in the city with my work, okay? So it's not like just out in the burbs, okay? This is, this is a phenomenon that where it's disproportionately white. And I'm talking about young teens, okay? I'm not talking about adults. I'm talking about teens. And so if it was a naturally occurring phenomenon, 
why wouldn't you see more teenagers of trans teens of color? Why is this mental illness, whatever you want to call it, so pervasive in the white community and not other communities? That is a question that on Twitter this week, former candidate for Congress in Baltimore, Kim Klasick, asked. And a response that she got is our tweet of the week. It's from Sarah Higdon, at Sarah Higdon underscore. Sarah with no H, so Sarah Higdon underscore. She is a contributor to the group Gays Against Groomers. And Sarah tweeted out, and let me go to her tweet here real quick. It's because, she says, I bring this up. So Klasik says, why do we not see this in the hood? And Sarah Higdon says, well, because the typical demographic is middle-class white kids with progressive parents for two reasons. They have the time and money to worry about such things, and they have been conditioned to believe through our education system, through critical race theory, that they are an oppressor and there is no way they can ever escape that status. So they see this as a way to join an oppressed class for which they are celebrated instead of condemned. It's the relationship between CRT and queer theory. Huh. Is that starting to make sense? That makes perfect sense. Thank you, Sarah, for pointing that out. So the one group of people that is not only shut out of the victim attention-getting game, white Americans, is also the same group that are permanently to blame, and we'll talk about this in our third segment, for the oppression of everybody else. Well, as a young person, that's probably very daunting. You do not want to be in that spot, so you got to get out of there, and the easiest way to do that and shed that label and climb from the bottom of the victim pyramid or the top of the oppressor pyramid, climb to the top of the victim pyramid is to join the LGBT club. And that makes sense when you're 16, but when you're 25 and you come to your senses, misery often awaits. Back to Luca Hain and all of these detransitioners. All of the children getting duped into this, quote, gender-affirming care by big pharma and hospitals, HMOs, they're all making huge profits off this. Or they were getting pushed into it by parents who see a trans kid is like having a Balenciaga bag or driving an Aston Martin. It gives them cachet. It, makes the, it gives them a special status. All of these kids will never know one of the greatest joys of life. And the other night, I was watching a basketball game, March Madness, and I asked my seven-year-old daughter, because I was really into the game, don't normally do this, okay? You know, not Al Bundy here, but I said, hey, can you grab me a soda, sweetie? And she goes, sure, daddy. And she went off toward the refrigerator and, you know, it was not that far away. So I'm going, what's taking her so long? You know, I mean, it was like two or three minutes. She comes back. It was kind of dark in the living room and she handed me the soda. I popped it. And as I put it up to my lips, I felt a little like something near the the mouth of the can, I looked down and it was and it was scotch tape. So I'm like, what, what's going on? And on my can of soda was a, and I still, I'm looking at this can right now on my desk. It says, P.S. Daddy, I love you forever. And that's why Paul and I and all of these people like Carrie Prejean Bowler and, and all these people are fighting in these legislators to, to stop this practice. But people like Luca Hain and people like, you know, all of these detransitioners, 
And people who've already undergone these surgeries, they will never know moments like that. Being a parent is not easy, but I can tell you that I will never, ever forget that moment. Just watching a basketball game, my daughter brings me a, a little note on, the, on a can of soda, and it gave me so much joy. It erased what had been a pretty bad couple of weeks for me, and I will never forget that. But these people will never know that because of these surgeries and the evil that is being pushed. So Paul Runyon and I, we disagree with Democrats and the left on a lot of things, but you can disagree with someone politically and still respect them, right? I hope you can at least. I mean, there's a lot of things that we talk about, whether it's tax policy, trickle-down economics, healthcare policies. The left and the right can disagree on these things, but rational people can say, you know what, I see where they're coming from. I don't agree with it, but I can respect them for having that position. And maybe that's where we find some compromise, but at least we respect them as human beings. On this issue, though, the Democrats like Michaela Kavanaugh and others that are, that are saying that Republicans have blood on their hands for opposing the permanent castration of children, the permanent destruction of their innocence— offering up their genitalia and their gender on the altar of this new religion of transgenderism, you cannot respect that. They are the butchers. And this is evil, folks. And so I say to all the people in these states fighting through their elected representatives to affect change and to protect kids, you're not alone. Do not be afraid to speak up. Never stop fighting. Off the soapbox, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the patriarchy wins again in Women's History Month as athletes at a Christian school in Vermont just found out. We'll have more on that story next on the Midnight Ride podcast. Stay tuned. We're back and we talked about how crazy it has been in the men's basketball tournament this March Madness. Not so much in the ladies tournament as most of the top teams cruised into the round of 32 and I really don't see anyone taking out the University of South Carolina. The Lady Gamecocks look unstoppable, winning their first game against Norfolk State by 32 points. They were actually 50-point favorites in that game. But could you imagine, just hypothetically speaking, if you gave Norfolk State or maybe their next opponent at the University of South Florida a man? What if a quote-unquote transgender woman who transitioned after puberty with the lung and the heart of a man, the muscles of a man, and say a 6'6", 230-pound frame joined their starting lineup. Well, in that case then, I think not only could South Carolina be beat, they likely would be beat. There's just no getting around the fact that the disparities in size, strength, speed, and power between men and women, boys and girls, are irrefutable. And on the field of play, especially in team sports, that could spell disaster if you mix the sexes. Do you remember last year, a couple months ago, there was a volleyball match from Cherokee County, North Carolina, and a volleyball player was hit in the face by a spike, about a 70 mile an hour spike hit directly in the face, and the spiker was a a male, a transgender player, came up to the net and blasted this ball, hitting the girl in the head, knocking her to the ground. 
Her head went back and hit the hard floor, and she suffered a concussion and serious head and neck injuries. And the school for which she played canceled all future matches against their opponent because of that. And actually, the boy in question posted the spike to his highlight reel as kind of like, hey, check out what I did. Well, that just was one example of the type of safety concerns, to say nothing of fairness and competition, that can result when you put boys on girls' teams. Last month in White River Junction, Vermont, a private school, Mid-Vermont Christian, was scheduled to play a game in the first round of the state's girls' high school championship tournament, but they pulled their team off the floor and forfeited the game because their opponent, Long Trail Mountain, had a boy on the team. MVCS, Mid-Vermont Christian School, the head of school there, Vicki Fogg, did not cite religious reasons as the reason why MVCS pulled out of the game. Rather, she said, quote, we withdrew from the tournament because we believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of our players. Allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general, end quote. Well, Vicki Fogg, head of school at Mid-Vermont Christian, you just perfectly articulated, perhaps better than I've heard anybody say, the argument against allowing boys into girls' sports. For starters, given the size, speed, and strength advantage men have over women, allowing boys to play taints the results. You don't need to look any further than the record shattered by Princeton swimmer Leah Thomas, who was mediocre at best when he competed against his fellow men, but nearly lapped the field at the women's NCAA championships. Furthermore, as that volleyball incident in North Carolina shows, girls could very easily get injured getting pushed around by the more aggressive and powerful opposite sex. In the game of basketball, there's ample opportunities for that with screen setting, plays under the basket, rebounding. There's a lot of opportunities to get hurt, just men on men and girls on girls, let alone throwing a, a man into or men into girls sports. Now, last week, a week ago today on Monday, in response to MVCS's forfeit in the tournament, the, Mer the Vermont Principals Association, the VPA, which is the governing body for all high school sports in Vermont, voted unanimously to remove MVCS, not just the girls' basketball team, but all of the teams at the school from competing in future state championship tournaments. Essentially, what they said was, look, if you don't follow VPA rules, you're not a VPA member. And so therefore, as not being a member institution, you won't be allowed to compete. Now, the Midnight Ride contacted Vicki Fogg to try and get her to join us on this pod, or maybe a special midnight chat, but she declined. One presumes that MVCS is about to appeal this decision, or there could be legal action and lawsuits pending. But the issues raised by Fogg and MVCS are spot on. If a post-puberty male can simply put on a woman's uniform and compete on a basketball court with girls, then all of girls' and women's sports are at risk. We're going to assume for the sake of argument that athletes like Leah Thomas or 
this basketball player or the volleyball player in North Carolina were genuinely suffering from gender dysphoria. And once they transitioned or identified as a member of the opposite sex, they just wanted to compete in their sport of choice. And they weren't, we're going to assume that they weren't merely mediocre male athletes who wanted to win trophies and set records as women. That being said, if any boy or boys can start trying out for women's teams, let's clear here, this isn't like the local YMCA rec league. These are high school teams, college teams. They have tryouts and not everybody makes it. Well, if that's the case, then it follows that some girl or girls are going to lose out and be cut to make way for boys. Some young woman out there, and maybe some girl in Vermont, lost a spot to this boy, and she's going to lose her opportunity to compete in athletics. Or maybe somebody else loses a starting job. Maybe somebody else loses the chance to get a scholarship. And listen, folks, I have daughters, okay? And I can tell you, there is ample research that shows that sports for girls is really important. Girls who play sports are healthier, more fit. They have more positive body esteem, which is critical for teenagers. They have a higher self-esteem overall, reduced risk of drug use, reduced risk of sexual activity, and they perform better in school. They get better grades. Same thing for, for boy athletes on the grade front. But listen, you can feel for the transgender athletes, but if you take a male who's gone through puberty and put them on a team of girls, that's really no different from somebody like Barry Bonds who took performance enhancers. The playing field is not level here, folks. And who's to say that next year, the team that had one boy playing on it doesn't have three or an all-boys starting five? I mean, isn't that what these bodies are essentially saying? If anybody can just merely identify and say, I identify as a girl, maybe grow their hair out, maybe change their name, whatever the case may be, if that's all you need to do, then, then why couldn't you see entire teams? So look, I think that the reasoning given by Ms. Fogg is a very good one. And we fully respect MVCS for putting their money where their mouth was and pulling their team out of the playoff game. They essentially said, this is what we believe and we're willing to lose the game. We're willing to deny our girls the chance to compete. We'll pull out. We don't want anybody to get hurt and we believe in it th that much. That was punishment enough not being able to compete in that one game. But the school and the girls, you know, the school likely had the support of the parents of those girls and the girls themselves, or maybe they wouldn't have done it. But what the VPA has done here, the Vermont Principals Association, the blanket removal of all girls and boys teams from MVCS from future competitions, that's heavy-handed. It's wrong. It's clear that the VPA cares more about bowing to the leftist political ideology than they do girls' sports and girl athletes. MVCS will not be the last school to get canceled like this, obviously, but we're going to need women athletes and coaches to take back their sports, and it's going to take courage. As we tweeted out last month, the next time somebody like Leah Thomas competes in a race, when the gun goes off, the other seven athletes, the women athletes standing there at the starting blocks need to not 
take off. They need to not jump into the pool. They need to not leave the starters blocks and let the man just go. The media will not be able to ignore it, but we have to have more people. And we've seen Martina Navratilova come out, an LGBT woman's athlete saying that men in sports, in women's sports, isn't fair. We need more schools, coaches, and athletes to show the courage and Maybe we can stop this trend. Hey, VPA, do the right thing. Reinstate MVCS into their competitions. You should care about this as a governing body of athletics. If the games aren't fair and athletes could end up getting hurt, well, then all the virtue signaling in the world isn't going to matter if somebody sustains a serious injury and if nobody wants to play because the games aren't fair. Well, when we come back, San Francisco wants to pay reparations We'll talk about how and what that means for us as a society when we come back on the Midnight Ride. Stay tuned. Our final segment today, and we're going to talk about a place we're often talking about here on the Midnight Ride, and that, of course, is the dying city of San Francisco, which is hemorrhaging residents, especially Black residents, in a nation which is about 13% black, San Francisco has gone from 13.5% black residents to just 5.7% today. That's in about a 50-year period. So in the last generation or two, black residents have left the city in droves. It's one of the lowest shares of African-American residents of any major city in the country. And The cost of living in San Francisco, as we know, is tremendously high, which is why people of all ethnic backgrounds are running from the place. It's not just the cost of living, it's rampant crime, homelessness, and just overall bad governance, which are all hallmarks of progressive governments in most major cities in the United States. And maybe because San Franciscans are so fed up with their government, the city's board of supervisors voted 11 to nothing last week to accept more than 100 recommendations on something that both its black residents and its uber wealthy laptop class can get behind. And of course, I'm talking about reparations. We have all heard more than we wanted the arguments for reparations, and it's really been starting to pick up recently. And it's usually framed in the context of reparations for the evils of slavery, the harm that was done to all of the black Americans by virtue of their ancestors being brought here from Africa, held in bondage, just horrible atrocities, a real stain on humanity. And then after the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, just more and more discrimination in the 20th century. And so their grandchildren and great-grandchildren should receive reparations. And that would most likely be paid by the United States federal government because it was, in fact, the federal government that was largely responsible for this. But why would a city government body consider paying reparations? Well, we'll get to the real reason in a minute or what I think is the real reason in a minute, but you could certainly make a a very cogent argument for reparations based on racist city policies. Policies like redlining, segregation, police departments, which violated the civil rights of black Americans, 
the list goes on and on. And in those cases, yes, it makes a lot of sense that a city could pay reparations to residents. And there is precedent for this. I didn't know this until I read an NPR article this past week on the San Francisco hearing, but the city of Evansville, Indiana, or maybe it's Evansville, Illinois. Let me see there. There's actually two of those. Yeah, I think it's Evansville, the city of Evansville, Illinois, maybe, did agree to pay reparations to its black residents. Now, it wasn't a cash payout. It actually was given to people who were victims of redlining policies and and racist housing policies in Evansville. And blacks in Evansville got this, this reparations payout. The eligible residents received $25,000 housing grants that they could use to buy homes, renovate their homes, or even pay down their mortgages. Now, the people on the left will say that systemic racism has still exists, of course, in their minds, and has really suppressed the wealth creation and has kept Black Americans in a much lower socioeconomic status than white Americans, but even immigrants from other countries, Asians, and others. And if you prescribe to that theory, then housing grants would be a logical way to help reconcile that. You know, if you could go out and buy a home, well, now you have wealth creation. We'll get back to Evansville in a minute, but the San Francisco reparations hearing, as you've likely heard, discussed dozens of different proposals. There were actually a hundred or more. One of them, which received the most publicity, was a proposal in which black residents would receive a $5 million payout from city taxpayers. And what that would actually mean, as reported on Fox News, is that non-black families would have to pay the equivalent of $600,000 to make the $5 million per black resident reparations thing work. I mean, this would basically, that one proposal of $5 million each would help to bury the city financially. Other proposals included the elimination of all debt, an annual income of $97,000 per year for life. One proposal even had black residents being able to purchase a home in the city limits of San Francisco for the price of $1. Given the real estate values in San Francisco, I would say that that would be a pretty good deal. Now, reparations just in general, especially on the national level, are an anathema to many Americans, including some black Americans. Noted economist Thomas Sowell, he considers this whole thing kind of futile. And he also pointed out that the institution of slavery is not just confined to the United States. It was a global institution. It was on every continent in the world for millennia. And, you know, at the time of the founding of the United States of America, there were actually European white people being taken in bondage by the Barbary pirates, and in fact, a good number of them. So there could be people from all over the world demanding reparations for the fact that their ancestors were held in Asia or Africa or Europe or Latin America as slaves. Sowell would say that this is not very practical and it's not very realistic. Then there's the issue of if you did nationally reparations for slavery, who's even eligible to get that? I mean, there are a lot of people whose ancestors got here after the Civil War was over. Should 
Italian or Irish immigrants or the, the grand, great-grandchildren of those immigrants who weren't even here. In Western Europe in 1776, that was the only place that there weren't slaves in the world. Should people who came from Western Europe after the Civil War, should they be forced to pay reparations to, say, somebody who, whose ancestors also came here after the Civil War, but just because of the color of their skin, they should get it? I mean, that's kind of messy, and it would be difficult to determine who would even be eligible. And a great example of that was just revealed in the news this past month. It was actually pretty hilarious. Angela Davis, a Californian, actually lives in the Bay Area, is a professor at UC Santa Cruz. If you've, You may have heard this name before. She was a Black Panther who was actually convicted because... Uh, in the 1960s, I believe, because guns that belonged to her were used in some murders. She was convicted, went to prison, and was actually, I think, exonerated and, and let out after about a year. But she is a card-carrying communist, Marxist, very much a militant Black activist from the 1960s, a Black Panther. Like a lot of us, she was very curious about her, her genealogy and particularly her maternal grandparents' side of the family. So she went on a TV show called Finding Your Roots. Finding Your Roots was hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. of Harvard, a historian, a history professor at Harvard. You might remember Henry Louis Gates Jr. from an incident that happened early on in the Obama presidency. He was basically accosted by a police officer right outside his own home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that sparked the beer summit where President Obama said, you know, I think if we just get these two guys together, they have a beer, we can solve this. That actually worked. They did solve it. it did happen. Many people thought it was just a photo op, but Gates and the police officer had a conversation. They came to an understanding, and that was that. But my point is, is that Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, is no right winger. He definitely was a fan of President Obama and is, is also somebody who I think is at least amenable to the idea of reparations. So he has this Black Panther, Angela Davis, on his show, and he goes through all the records. I mean, this is a master historian. So it's sort of like the, this moment where, you know, envelope, please. And he's telling, you know, Angela Davis, who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, again, very militant activist that one of her ancestors was one of the 101 people who sailed here on the Mayflower. Angela Davis's ancestor, as Gates said, was one of the earliest Americans, one of the people who helped establish this country. So that's very problematic for Davis, who was just in utter disbelief. And she knew that, you know, that little factoid that someone in her family tree could have actually owned slaves was going to be problematic for her. And that's exactly why this, this is a very good example of why the national argument for reparations is very dicey. And it's, it's really problematic. I mean, why should Aunt, someone like Angela Davis get reparations? She should be paying reparations, right? I mean, you'd have to have the entire staff of 23andMe, Ancestry.com, all of the historians like Henry Louis Gates going through it. And even then, you would have situations where it would just not be fair. 
That's at the federal level. At the local level, there's definitely arguments to be made for those who fell victim to redlining all of these policies, racist housing policies. I mean, the banks that wouldn't give loans. Definitely reasons for especially older Black Americans who experienced a lot of this stuff to believe that they want, you know, that they should get reparations. But the, the problem is, though, is that those types of reparations that the cities would give out are likely to upset a lot of Black San Franciscans more than, more than it would make them feel whole. When we go back to Evansville now, remember what we said about Evansville, the $25,000 housing grants? Well, that really enraged a lot of the Black residents because renters couldn't get it. The homes in Evansville, Illinois, were $400,000 or so, typically. So the $25,000 wouldn't cover a down payment. So if you didn't own a home and you wanted to buy one, you probably couldn't unless you had a significant amount in the bank. And a lot of people just didn't qualify to get this money. You know, that same scenario could play out in San Francisco. The city council, all of these count, these board of supervisors, all of these supervisors were so over the top. I mean, they were practically on their knees declaring how much San Francisco had harmed its black residents and why reparations needed to be paid. And then they started talking about these different proposals. Now, if they don't give large cash payouts or debt erasures, there's going to be a lot of people pissed off. And that's the likely outcome here. That's, that's really the story here. The Board of Supervisors is in no way bound to carry out any of the proposals that were given. There were about 100 different proposals, and some of the supervisors, when confronted by the media, said, hey, look, the purpose of this hearing was to affirm the need for reparations, not to approve specific proposals. That won't happen until September. And I suspect that what really happened here kind of makes you wonder, this very public hearing, was it just a way to score political points to an angry constituency of, of largely progressive people? I mean, we're going to have to stay tuned to that development, what happens in September. But I suspect that this was all political theater designed to appease people who were angry with the crime, angry with all of the, the bad governance and the homeless you know, the, the horrible homeless problems in San Francisco. If you're going to do reparations, the way to do it, I do believe, is the way that Evansville did it, address the specific grievances or give school, school choice vouchers, free private K-12 through schooling for all Black Americans. That's the reparations I can get behind, but you know the left would never go for that, especially in a place like San Francisco. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you for, for sticking with me on this one. We hope you'll join us next week on The Midnight Ride, where hopefully my partner Paul Runyon will be back from Hawaii. And hopefully your last final four-team or two will still be alive when we talk next week. But let's face it, they're probably going to get beat. <laughs> for Paul Runyon, I'm Connor Coughlin. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on another Midnight Ride podcast. See you soon.